0: everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. One of the biggest names in the history of bodybuilding joins us to talk about what it actually takes to be the best in a highly subjective sport. Jay Cutler's incredible story of dedication to not only his training, but his recovery practices is both the reason for his renowned success and also his ability to live a healthy and fulfilled life long after hanging up the spray tan. Here it is, episode five hundred and
1: sixty-two. Yeah, hey Jay, thanks for jumping on Power Outfit Radio. You're in Vegas. I'm in Las Vegas. Yeah, that's where you've been for a number of years.
2: I've been here for about twenty years. I'm originally from Massachusetts, and you know, I headed, I went to California. I, I went west uh, for the bodybuilding career about ninety-nine, and Somehow I migrated to Las Vegas and uh, I've been here ever since. So it's, uh, it's a city of sin and uh, it's been a great opportunity for me.
1: So you didn't end up in like uh, Venice Golds or any of the Southern California spots?
2: No, you know, I was in Southern California for two years in a place called Aliso Viejo because I didn't want to be in, in the bodybuilding scene as much. Uh, I was actually moved out to California by a guy named Joe Weeder, who was the godfather of bodybuilding. He brought Schwarzenegger, a lot of the guys um, out to California uh, to pursue bodybuilding. And he actually wanted me closer to the books at the time, which were Muscle and Fitness and Flex were his magazines. And to be able to shoot year round, and that was the only outlet that was prior to social, which a lot of people watching this or listening, probably don't even recollect those days where it was just books. Uh, that was the only way you could get notoriety or or be featured. And you know, covers of magazines meant a lot. And uh, that's really how I started my career, getting notoriety through those magazines.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I, I uh, before we moved to Texas, I lived in Newport Beach. So I know Lisa. Viggo. Okay. And uh, I used to go down and train with some guys uh, down there. And uh, we, we went to, they, they were buddies with Milos. We would go out and train at Milos's gym.
2: Yeah, we used to do photo shoots there for Flex. That was kind of the headquarters for Flex magazine shoots. And and uh you know he's actually training in las vegas now milos he's here and a lot of guys have migrated here uh ever since the pandemic but i was one of the original ones that came out after 9 11 happened and uh you know i bought up a lot of properties and you know kept me here and also the 24-hour city was very uh it was a little more productive for me for training because i was training around the clock sometimes four times a day and that was uh more suitable for what my career was. And of course, the Mr. Olympia was held here uh, since '99. You know, it was at Mandalay Bay, then it migrated to uh, the Orleans Hotel, and now it's going to be at uh, Planet Hollywood now in the future.
1: So, how do, I mean, uh, you know, obviously, you know, young kid growing up in Massachusetts got into lifting weights. I assume that, you know, your first experience was probably pretty. Uh, spectacular for you to be able to kind of get where you got I'm just wondering like what was the transition like you went in you wanted to lift weights was there anything for sports like what was the driver that that got you into the gym
2: you know I started looking at the books early on my sister's boyfriend had um had an interest in bodybuilding and he had some old muscle builder books and I saw you know pictures of the early day guys such as Chris Dickerson and Samir Benut, and, and uh I I I gathered some interest in the muscle building and, and, uh, I was an athlete in high school. I played football and a couple of my friends worked out. Uh, we toyed around in the, in the high school gym. And I was always the strongest kid. Um, it seemed like, um, from my age group and even older, uh, age uh, groups, I, I was, a, I was able to lift, lift a lot of weight. So, and I had a good body. I did concrete work. I grew up in a family business doing concrete from at the age of 11 and uh, that kind of influenced me to, you know, say, hey, what could I do with my physique if I actually started lifting weights? And I was able to go to a couple of Gold's gyms through, you know, my probably my sophomore, junior year um, locally. I didn't actually join the gym and start actually pursuing any kind of training until after high school because I was working on the weekends and school vacations after school for my brother's business and playing football. And that it just didn't it didn't suit my my time schedule to be able to hit the gym. So I started reading books and, you know, attending my local GNCs and picking up, you know, information there. You know, that's the only place they really sold the bodybuilding books. So I read through a book called Beyond Built by Bob Paris, who was an old school aesthetic bodybuilder. And that really gave me um an insight on how to train. Um, it was a lot of techniques and to learn the different exercises. But truly, when I joined the gym at 18, you know i sat around the gym and just watched people work out and that's really how i kind of learned to be honest just just by visually seeing guys train and of course the books told the story also where you could see the workout routines in there and you tried to make those those guys come alive in there and even the women's routines i mean i followed the women even in those magazines because they were very relevant then and uh, that's how i learned
0: was there was there a coach that really helped unlock the power of execution so not just reading and following three sets of, of 10 really focusing on this to accomplish what you wanted to.
2: Yeah. I think early on guys, uh, I, I had people in the gym that were very, um, motivational and I watched how they worked out and there was a few guys that kind of took me under their wing and showed me, Hey, this is how you squat or, you know, this is foot placement or whatever. But it wasn't until about six months into training, um, the gym owner of Gold's Gym, Andy Stratus, was, you know, he was noticing my progress. And I was going to college at the time around the corner, and I would train like 8 to 10 at night. Uh, The gym would close at 10 o'clock. And, you know, they started to take notice at the gym. And, you know, he's like, man, you know, you have a lot of potential. So he was able to, there was a a show on ESPN2 called American Muscle Magazine, and it was owned by Lou Zawick. And it featured like a lot of talent, you know, covered bodybuilding events, you know, especially on the West coast. And, you know, our dream in Massachusetts is to always go East. I mean, go West when you, you know, you're stuck in the snow and the, you know, the crappy weather. And I used to see these guys in the beach and the books and, you know, through this show, American muscle and living the life out there. And, you know, he took notice in me, Losewick, and he started calling me and giving me motivation. And then fortunately he looked me he linked me up with a trainer called, his name was Chris Aceto. He lived in Maine. So it was about two hours from me. And, and Chris actually came down and took a look at me when I was about 18 and a half and, uh, you know, wrote out a meal plan for me just as a favor, um, kind of to lose a wick and because he was kind of a figurehead in, in the business. And, you know, I progressed very, very quickly then. And then Chris became like my lifelong coach pretty much through my career. I mean, he, he gave me, uh, you know, nutritional um, advice. He, he dieted me for the contest. And, you know, he was uh, definitely kind of the backbone of of knowledge that, you know, taught me how to how to achieve the best physique and learn my body with the food that I ate.
1: So where did you make that like kind of leap? I mean, there's a lot of dudes that's, that stroll into the gym and people with good potential, but not every person that goes into that situation ends up going on and uh, becoming Mr. Olympia. And, uh, you know, in preparation for this, I went back and was just watching some of the stuff. And I didn't realize uh like the trials and tribulations and how many times you know and like how long it took for that ascension process and like it was interesting for you know seeing the commentary of people being like oh you know he should give up and you just kept coming at it kept coming at it and kept coming back so i wonder like where does that tenacity come from and more importantly like how did you make that leap
2: well just to give you guys a little perspective for the people that don't know exactly you know i i started training at 18 i turned pro at 23 and i won my first olympia at 33 Okay. Uh, I was in my first Mr. Olympia at 25 and I started placing second when I was around 27 and it took me that many attempts. I mean, people know the story. If you look into bodybuilding, probably the most publicized battle was between myself and Ronnie Coleman. And I was second to him four times. Uh, and I had a year that I skipped and I did not compete, but, uh, you know, that's why uh i think i have such a big following is because i was the underdog for a lot of years but to go back you know i became pretty spectacular early meaning at 18 and a half i i found chris aceto at night basically at at the end of my 19th uh at the age of 19 just before i turned 20 i won the teenage nationals which had made me the best teenager in the country so I progressed very quickly. And that's when people really started to take notice, you know, three years later, I was chasing a pro card, uh, and my first attempt, I won that, which is, it's tough to do. Uh, and then, you know, going into the pro ranks, you know, it took me a year or two to get my rhythm and I was winning pro shows by the time I was, you know, 25 years old and and then you know, qualifying for the Olympia. And then, like I said, I landed second for the first time when I was 27th. I mean, I was 15th in my first Olympia. Then I finished eighth the next year, and then I was second and never looked back from there, uh, being second until I was able to win the title. Uh, so it was it was a transition that took time, but at the same time, people look at my career and say, Man, that's like a storybook like career on what people want to do. Because not only did I have success on the stage you know, rather quickly, uh, I was able to financially support my bodybuilding career, which kind of was the goal in the beginning. I mean, I, I thought, man, this this is a great opportunity, great business. I was mentored by Joe Weider, like I mentioned, you know, he taught me about investing money and, you know, that it was short lived. And, you know, I had planned to be retired at 30. I'll be honest with you guys. Like, I always said that and you go back and there's pieces in the books where I said, you know, by 30, I'll be out and focusing on my business ventures. and you know by the time 30 came around i was you know contracted so well and i was still in the in the, the midst of a great career and then of course winning the olympia 33 and you know i stepped away at 40 and retired for good but you know there was a lot of years in my 30s which i feel is the peak age for a bodybuilder at this this age uh you know you're, you're not your best until you're probably your mid-30s with maturity and and the muscle density and that's gave me opportunity to uh you know have a lengthy career, but also a very successful and healthy one, which is the key at this point.
1: No, I mean, uh, that's probably the, the one thing that, which is really interesting. And that's what I I was also curious on the training side, like, how did you avoid these big injuries? I mean, uh, you know, looking at what's happened to Ronnie, um, I think Ronnie got some bad advice on that back injury and that back surgery. And I think he, he's had some, maybe some people around him that weren't giving him good information, but, how did you really avoid those injuries and really create that longevity? I mean, you came back at 40, which is kind of unheard of. So,
2: Yeah, for me, uh, you know, I did have an injury late in my career, but I always trained with a lot of volume. And I had short rest periods and I never broke weight records where, you know, you see these crazy videos of Ronnie training so heavy, although he says his injury stemmed from an early football injury. And and myself, I was a football player in high school. I didn't play in college like he did. but uh, I think my training did save me a lot because of the high volume, meaning I did everything at 12 repetitions. I didn't go extreme, extreme heavy. I just worked to fatigue the muscle as much as possible. So it was short rest periods. And, you know, I did a lot of tissue work and I did a lot of stretching and I did, I mean, I spent six hours a week in tissue work pretty much through the, the high points of my career. So you're talking You know from 2000 all the way through um when i retired at 2013 i mean i was in six hours a week of tissue work and uh really stretching fascia and and keeping the joints uh you know keeping the joints from putting too much pressure from tight tendons and and uh you know having that mobility when you train because people don't realize as you build muscle and you tear muscle fibers you're going to you're going to develop scar tissue and that scar tissue is going to it's it's going to keep you from being um you know pliable and you know a muscle gets bound up you know with with constant tearing where you got to keep that muscle loose enough so you can continue blood flow and nutrients in there and and have the mobility especially in your shoulder joints to be able to move your shoulder joints correctly as you train and i think that's really what was a huge part of my success so um that's you know, I would say that I attribute a lot of that, but listen, everyone's genetically different. I mean, we all train different. People have injuries. I mean, people's shoulders get burnt out or knees. And I have to say, you know, at at 48 today, you know, I still have zero restrictions. I have zero joint pain. Um, no, no real nagging issues, which is rare for someone that trained at the highest level for so many years, like myself. Do you see
0: that approach adopted today are people taking that extra tissue work mobility stretching as part of their programming or is it it it's still set reps and that's i I mean
2: i think i think some people do but you know remember it's it it takes a lot of finances to do that and you know you have to think the long term and I, i mean you hear about the stories about you know how kobe was so uh focused on you know keeping his body in check you hear about lebron james spending a million a year on on his, you know, uh, keeping his body in check and through the off season. And, you know, it just never stops. It's around the clock. So where I think too many people focus just on the time they spend in the gym, it's what you do outside the gym too. And I think a lot of it's hydration. I think a lot of it's the nutrition, how you eat. Um, And you see a lot of even these fighters now have adapted to better diets that have allowed them to perform at a higher level, but not only when they're on top, but walking away, you know, you just you 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 take a lot of risk. I mean, you push your body to limitations, especially someone like me who, you know, naturally was, you know, I was 200 pounds when I graduated high school at 18, you know, at my peak I, I was you know 300 pounds in the off season and you know, 55 to 60. Um, so you know, you're you're above what you're today. I've settled at about 230. And, uh, like I said, I mean, I'm still actively training and doing cardio on a daily basis, but the most important thing is my nutrition and I still keep my body prime. And I think that's the key. So when, uh,
1: uh, I'm like six, six and, uh, I mean, just my background, I played in the NFL for 10 years and I think in my heaviest, I was probably like three twenty something and it was way too fucking heavy. I mean, I played best about 300, 305 pounds. Uh, was there a point where, you know, you hit 300 pounds because um, I'm younger than you uh, by a few years, but like I was always a fan of bodybuilding. I remember seeing Dorian Yates on the cover of Flex, and I was always, uh, you know, like, you know, the Olympia and seeing the battles between you and Ronnie. And I remember seeing you guys come out, and it was like the, like, uh, you know, like the changing of the tides in terms of just mass and just these 300 pound dudes coming out that were shredded. Uh, what was the what was the one thing that kind of struck you in the off season where you were probably 300 plus pounds where you realized like
2: holy shit, dude, this isn't easy. You know, for me, I'm going to be honest with you. It's It was never that strenuous to be that weight because even dieting down for shows, like you, when I say I was 300 and I cut down to 255, surprisingly, the last couple of weeks is when I would drain a lot of that uh, fluid. So I would dehydrate and I would land at that 255 for a very short window. But I was, you know, 270. Prior to cutting fluids, which it seems like a big water drop, but you know when I was drinking two plus gallons of water a day, uh, that's really what you know I had to cut that down to basically zero. So a lot of it was fluid loss, and then to retain the fullness of the muscle, and so for me it was it was a pretty easy weight to maintain, but the diet I would say was the hardest part. Meaning I was eating seven to eight meals a day, um, and I was eating upwards, you know, three four pounds of meat. Um, you know, I would eat 20 egg whites for breakfast. I mean, you talking when you were 330, I mean, obviously the height is is much different to me being five nine. So you can imagine a stockier guy, you know, I was more wide than I was tall. Sure. And uh, that's the most that's the, the misconception. People always like, I thought you were taller because when you see someone so big in the books, you think, oh, they have to be tall, especially when you mention a weight, right? I mean, think about if someone was on the football field, five nine, three hundred pounds. I mean, it would be crazy, right? So, well,
1: uh, I played against Ted Washington. It was like six six, like four hundred plus pounds. I mean, and, it's, I, and it's he big. was, yeah, it, it was like I felt like he could have put me in his pocket. That's how big he was.
2: Yeah, and uh, so I think you know, for me, I for some reason I never really was that uncomfortable. Yes, it was hot on planes or. Like, uh, you know, I would get hot a lot easier because, you know, my metabolism, when you're eating every two hours, you know, people don't understand when you put food in your body, it's like a furnace, you know,
1: give us some examples. Like I, I think, um, uh, you know, cause people always ask me, they were like, Hey, when you were, and and what was funny, and I'm sure you found this too, uh, the biggest and leanest I ever was, was when I ate the most. So when mm-hmm. I was eating like seven or 8,000 calories, I was, uh, you know, 300 or six, six, I was like 308 at like 7% body fat. 7 8%. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember like it was pretty consistent, like six to 7,000 plus calorie meals. And I remember thinking, like, this is fucking awful how much I hate food. But then all of a sudden, when you cut the meals back, all of a sudden I wasn't nearly as lean and couldn't carry as much muscle, which yeah. is so counterproductive. So most people have no concept of what it's like to eat that much. So just give us an idea of what, of like, On a daily basis, what you consumed in that sense. Yeah,
2: so so like you said, uh, you know, it's like it's like putting coals in a fire, right? So the more you feed it, the the bigger the flame, the more heat you get, right? So that's really what I try to tell people is the people that eat once a day or twice a day, like your metabolism's dead in the water. Like you're not going to lean out that way. So that's why we eat.
1: You mean you're against fasting and like this somehow magic where if I starve myself and. Eat one meal, I'll be shredded.
2: <laughs> no, you see, I mean, you're definitely going to drop some fat, but to maintain and to build muscle at the same time, you have to have that consistent flow. So, sure. I mean, fasting didn't exist in my era, and it probably you never even heard of it in yours, right? Uh, so,
1: supermodels. Yeah. Uh, but it I was mean, cigarettes, cocaine, and grilled cheese sandwiches. Yeah. So
2: yeah. <laughs> it's what
1: supermodels did. We call it fasting.
2: Yeah. So, um, so listen, so a breakfast, um, I would have 20 egg whites, couple whole eggs, two slices of Ezekiel bread, which is a, f- a flourless bread. I'd have a cup of coffee, um, a big bowl of oatmeal or grits or a cream of rice. It really, it kind of varied, but I mean, I would eat, you know, my goal for each meal was to have around 75 grams of protein and I would have about 150 to 200 carbs per meal. Okay. Which is outrageous. I was eating a thousand grams of carbohydrates a day. And even on a contest diet, I'll be honest, like, yes, I had to cut down on the carbs to start the process four months out. But as I got down to eight weeks forward into the contest, I would probably eat a thousand grams of carbs a day because my body was just burning so much. Because remember, my output went from off season. I just trained once a day. Um, I would, you know, push heavy weights. My body weight would climb up like you, you know, close to three hundred, say two ninety. Um, and I wasn't doing as much output. But when I would get ready for a contest, I would add two cardio sessions in a day. So I'd get up in the morning. I do you know, an hour or 45 minutes of cardio work. I'd eat a meal or two, go to the gym, train once, um, come home, eat a meal or two, go back to the gym, train another time with weights, um, eat two more meals, and then another cardio session for an hour before I went to bed. So it was four times a day that I was blasting my metabolism with weight training or cardio. And listen, the weight training was, there was such an output on that, meaning I was training with so much core and intensity uh, you burn way more calories than you could ever burn on a step mill or treadmill. And, and don't don't get me wrong. We never ran. We weren't running. Right. Because the weight on the joints would be too much. We did, you know, uh, steady treadmill work, bike work, elliptical. I, I mean, step mill ended up being the best thing for me. So the rotating stairs, that's what brought in the conditions for our back. Still still the best.
1: Uh, To this day, like uh, I used to, there's a gym uh, down the street that I joined because they had a step mill Mm -hmm. because there's nothing that hits it like that thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I have it in my garage. I just this morning got up, you know, I I wake up pretty early still. I was up at about five o'clock and I hit the stairs, you know, for about 15 minutes. And I did 15 minutes of bike work today. So I do 30 minutes now and then I'll go work out this afternoon and I'll do another 30 minutes after training. So I still doing cardio twice a day because I'm still trying to keep my body weight down. Um, but obviously the weight training is is very uh, minimal uh, compared to what I used to do. I both, I eat half as much and I train half as much. Let's put it that way. So, uh, But that's really what, I mean, uh, the meals I would eat, you know, probably 12 ounces of meat, um, which was steak, chicken, turkey. And then I would have uh, at least two cups of rice, which is 100 grams of carbs, um, and then maybe add some other things. And then around the training where I take a huge meal where I drink like. Some sort of a sugar drink, even while I worked out, and uh, you know, follow up with some sort of a low-fat protein, whether it's protein powders or you know, fish or turkey. Where I wouldn't really eat steak around the training as much, but there was a lot of days I'd eat, I'd eat steak four times a day just to keep the weight on and really have it stick to me a little more. I mean, red meat is definitely a beneficial to people trying to put on weight or size, especially if a fast metabolism. But I really had very rare cheat meals. So people always often ask, "Hey, what's your what's your vice? And for me, I never really had scheduled cheat days. Of course, I had my pizza or my burgers, or I liked my carrot cake from Cheesecake Factory. I mean, we, ha- we all have our things that we do, but it was never like when I got done with a show, I need to splur- splurge and eat this or that. It was never that way with me because I was focused on, okay, how can I be better to retain or you know challenge whoever's uh, pushing me to the next level?
0: On that note, do do you get feedback, or is it just second place enough feedback for you? I need to improve. Do the judges give you what you need to focus on going into the next year?
2: Yeah, most of the time when I was second to Ronnie Coleman, I just needed to get bigger. You know? <laughs> well, like, uh, explain
1: that. Like, um, and this is the hard thing. I like I think with the bodybuilding stuff in that it's subjective. That there are these people out there that are basically judging you against another person with a set of standards that uh, they haven't, I mean, I don't know, before the, you know, six weeks before the contest, like, hey, this is what we're looking for? Or is it just the fact that I got to put together the best package and you have people that are like the Joe Weeters and the experts that are like, hey, you need to bring this up? Or I just wonder, like, stepping out there, like, thinking, like, is the package I've put together what these guys are looking for?
2: Yeah, listen, everyone has weaknesses, and, and it's pretty apparent when you stand, and you line up guys on stage, and listen, these judges, these seven judges are experts at, picking apart the body. So if you're, if you're missing your calves compared to your biceps, or, you know, for example, my flaw was Ronnie Coleman had such a great back. So he, when he hit a back double bicep or he hit a lat spread, I wasn't conditioned enough from the back to challenge him, which basically led me to think, okay. And the judge's feedback, I need to get bigger. So when I lean down that muscle pops more, and that's exactly what I did in order to beat him. And, you know, of course, age takes a toll on all of us. So Ronnie was, you know, 10 years older than me. So when I was 33, he was 43. Um, So you can imagine, you know, he pushed longer than I ever did. I retired, like I said, at 40. But uh, he, um, you know, he just was dominant from the back. And that's why no one could really beat him for eight years. Uh, It was almost impossible to do, although I came the closest, right? I mean, I was the one battling him second for so many times and arguably could have won at least one or two of those. I mean, really, one was very, very close, 2001, my first second place I got to him. Uh, You know, it's just, it's condition. You know, it's condition and holding as much muscle as possible. Two different bodies. I mean, uh, it was comparing myself with him i mean he was a little taller than me um, i felt i had better condition from the front side a lot of shows but he was better conditioned from the back and this whole thing is the judges say the olympia's one from the back side and that's where uh he was dominant for so many years
1: when you uh so with the conditioning piece it's pretty interesting i mean you're doing all this training like how like is there just like the experience of being like hey you know at this point i mean i assume it's the training. It's the cardio. It's trying to get into caloric restriction, uh, or at least a caloric deficit, long enough, being you know, and eating enough protein to maintain the muscle. Like, how long would it take for you to get into it? And uh, like, was there, a, you know, you always hear about bodybuilders talking about how dark it gets, where you know, you're hungry, you're thirsty for days on end. I mean, was it as uh, as terrible as it looks? Because man, whenever I see those guys on stage, I think, man, it's probably the closest to will ever be to death.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the sad part, and I hate to I hate to say that, but I mean you know, you dehydrate yourself so much, but you know, a preparation would start like uh, 16 to 20 weeks out. So we would start zoning and saying, okay, I've reached my peak off season, meaning, you know, this is as much as I'm going to probably add for body weight. It's time time to start coming down. So you start, you know, adding in the cardio and the training, you focus on, you know, dialing down and and ripping off body fat. You know, I I competed about 3% when I got down into shape at about like i said 255 to 60. so uh for me you know i would take the first four weeks to fall into the groove so at 16 weeks then take 16 to 12 weeks to really start really watching things come off and then once you get down to about eight weeks is when you really have to start okay things are starting to really show and process and then of course the last four weeks is like you're pretty much ready but you might have a like a little bit on your hamstrings that you gotta get or the lower back or sometimes people it's the lower abdominal I was always ripped from the front, so I never had issues where it was my lower back and around my my hamstrings is really where I need to dial down. so I would manipulate the calories during that time and of course start you know tracking the water, cutting down on the sodiums and and, you know, just making sure that my body waking up every day was peaking better and better each day. You know, you're, you're going to have great days and bad days, but, but, you know, not to fatigue yourself too much and maintain as much, like I said, as much muscle as possible, where the last week is the torture week, because you have to basically manipulate your carbohydrates and your proteins. And, you know, you, you train up until three, you have no energy. And then once you cut that water like it's like death man like you just you lose all sense of any kind of sensible things around you like your mind doesn't work right when you're very dehydrated you get a little loopy and uh that's how we end up on stage and then of course you get to go on stage like you're energized when you feel like total shit you know so and you know you're you're driven by adrenaline at that point like you trained now someone like me trained a whole year people I always say I prep for 20 weeks or I prep for 12 weeks or what, but the truth is, is like I prepped my whole life for this, right? I worked my way from 18 to get to that point where I was on the Olympia stage. And it was only a dream to me. Like picking up a magazine, like when I was 12 years old and seeing those guys, I never imagined that could be me. And here I am, you know, leaving a legacy and, and setting a new standard for bodybuilding as the elite. And to imagine still to this day, you know, being who I am, to know that I have a place in the history books for bodybuilding to the end of time. And people, I don't know how many years will talk about, you know, my legacy. And it's pretty unbelievable. I mean, I have a crazy office. I'm looking around right now with the awards and you know, all my, my trophies are sitting, the Mr. Olympia trophies are behind me. And I look at them every day when I walk in this office and think, man, I can't believe I did this. That's what's crazy.
1: Hey, Power Athlete Nation, if you enjoyed this podcast and you're interested in supporting Power Athlete and getting involved with Power Athlete, myself and the crew here in Austin and in the global network, you can do it a few different ways. You can link on shop.powerathletehq.com. You can buy merch, you know, Be the Hammer, uh, Move the Dirt, all the really amazing merchandise that we put together, and we're gonna have a bunch of cool stuff coming up here at the end of the year for Black Friday uh, that's gonna blow your mind. We also have the best training programs in the game. I think the most efficient, most powerful, uh, well thought out, elegant programs that you will find. We're easy to get a hold of. Just go to powerathletehq.com, look for training. It's going to take you over to our best in class partner, Train Heroic, where you can look at Jack Street. If you're just trying to put on thick gobs of muscle and you want to get jacked as fuck, Jack Street's your program. We got Field Strong. Train Like an Athlete. Allow us to foster and develop athleticism. That's really our flagship program for trying to make athletes more athletic. We got Bedrock, that beginner program. We got Grindstone for those of you guys that are in the fight. You need a flexible program that lives with you. If you're still into getting your face melted by the dirtiest, nastiest, saltiest wads on the planet, check out Johnny Wad. If you're looking for a little bodybuilding, check out Johnny Bod. And if you're looking for a program, if you're In a situation where you go in harm's way, you're looking to kick in doors and take names and break hearts and all that good stuff, check us out at Hammer, the Logistic Athlete Movement Readiness Program that was developed uh, with some of the baddest dudes on the planet. So you can check us out in the programs. If you are interested in getting involved in the Block 1 network with Power Athlete, you can first check out academy.powerathletehq.com. You can check out our methodology. And if you want to go that Block 1 track, travel out here to Austin and prove – that you are composed of the metal that we're looking for to be in our block one network so we're easy to get a hold of you can support us in any way so if you uh are enjoying this podcast and really like this content find a way to get involved I'm giving you a couple different options we're looking forward to seeing you thanks yeah as a driver on stage for sure uh with, um so obviously the component you know the dieting down the food uh you know we talked a little bit about the training it was like never less than 12 reps and you know short rest periods 30 60 seconds how long would each workout really last? And what was the split that you used? Was it one body part a week, two body parts a week? Like, how did you necessarily attack it? And, uh, like, what was the volume? Were you tracking volume total sets? Or how did you necessarily get to where? Or was it to the point where I was like, fuck, I can't do anymore. I got to go?
2: Yeah. So uh, I did, like I said, I did everything at 12 repetitions, like four sets of each exercise. So if I was going to do a flat barbell press, I would do that four sets, then move to the next one. I would okay. do probably six different exercises. So I would do, 20, 25 sets per body part. That would take me because of the short rest time, 45 to 60 seconds. I mean, I could get through that in about 45 minutes. And I was probably in the gym, I would say an average of an hour, especially like I mentioned, I was training twice a day. So I would do sometimes two body parts a day. So say I did in the morning, I'd went and did chest. I would, you know, rest five hours. And then I would go back and train like triceps. And that might only take me 30 minutes because it's a smaller body part, but I would still do 20 sets or, you know, 25 sets depending. Um, my split was always usually two days on, one day off. So I did four weight workouts over two days. Uh, so I would always need a day off. So it's it's a miss. Uh, people, people think that bodybuilders train seven days a week. We actually need rest days to recover. You're going to grow outside the gym. And that's why the diet is so important around the training. If I wasn't eating the meals, I just wouldn't train. Like say if I had uh, a family emergency or I got stuck on an airplane, um, didn't have food with me and I ate twice in one day and I was scheduled to train, I, I wouldn't train that day because it just, it's not beneficial. You're not going to have the workout, the performance, you're not going to have the recovery. It's better to just take a rest day. So those days happen. Uh, but you have to stay consistent with it. And that's why, like I had that schedule: two days on one day off training. And I might, you know, I would do back one day, legs one day, um, say chest and triceps. And, you know, I do shoulders and biceps another day. So uh, it was about five total days a week. I was in the gym for weights.
0: Well, I wanted to to get in. We sent you some questions earlier before the show, and I want to get into the importance of having an adversary. And, did that help you to motivate you? Were you, you friends alongside Ronnie? Or was it this extra spark that really kept you going when the days got dark?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always wonder, like, uh, I mean, it's kind of interesting as, I, as you go through your history and you look, I mean, it's kind of intertwined or intertwined with this battle with Ronnie Coleman. And I always think that, like, there's probably great bodybuilders, but they don't have that individual that's pushing them. So they're not necessarily remembered, you know. And uh, so how, how did that part play into it?
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, he was my idol when I came into this, I mean, Ronnie Coleman called me when I won my first pro show, the 2009, champions. And he was the Mr. Olympia at the time. He had already won two titles by that that point. And he was my idol, man. So he called me and, you know, he's congratulated me, not knowing that a year later, 2001, we'd be battling one, two. I mean, I don't think he expected me to come up that quick. And, uh, you know, from then forward, we, we traveled together. Uh, We spent a lot of time and I would watch his videos and I would look at his magazine articles and, you know, no one trained like him. Uh, No one was built like him. So you couldn't do it. You know, you, you, you idolize those people, but without Ronnie Coleman, I wouldn't have been great. I mean, I never would have pushed myself. I wouldn't have had uh, the drive to be better. um, I don't think because when someone is chasing you or, consistently or just you know is better than you which at the time he was uh that's what really kept me motivated and uh you know I owe a lot of credit to that rivalry but we were friends but I'll tell you I went in the gym like I hated Ronnie Coleman you know um I would train like that every day and I would truly believe that every Mr. Olympia that I battled him I was going to win and people thought I was crazy about that but there's no way you can prepare fully and, and correctly if you're not like, you know, I can, I'm going to win this contest. Um, I never thought about defeating or, or accepting second place or, you know, 15th or eighth of which I finished prior. Like I only wanted to be the best. And, uh, you know, I try to create that environment around me and have people around me that believed in me, but didn't over accentuate the fact of how great I was. So I would fly people in and out to train with me, um, I would mimic a lot of things that Ronnie did in his videos or his, uh, workout routines in the books. Um, because uh, listen, it worked well for him, heavy training, um, you know, T-bar rows, for example, increased my back deadlifts, which I didn't necessarily do through my whole career. I was able to incorporate those things and that gave me motivation. So I would hope I, he would feel the same way. I mean, me being second consistent to him, I'm sure it kept him on his toes and, uh, I truly believe he knew he was the greatest at that time and probably never thought he'd be defeated. And, you know, I was one of the fortunate ones to be able to do that. But at the same time, I always mention, I kind of felt bad beating him in 2006 when I won the title because I idolized him so much and I respected him so much. I knew how much he loved bodybuilding. Like I said, we traveled a lot of weekends together. We did guest appearances together. That's what was so cool is the magazines built us up as such rivals well, we had so much fun on the road together. You know, we'd go out to the clubs and we'd eat to dinner, dinner together, and we would train together. And, uh, we had a lot of laughs and, uh, you know, those are memories that I don't think will be replicated because there's not that consistency one, two competition anymore. And, uh, I don't think the guys travel like that for guest appearances as often because of social media, like everyone has their own YouTube or, you know, doing, doing stuff on Instagram or TikTok or whatever else, uh, these platforms, but you know, it's, it's definitely changed, uh, the landscape of what, you know, the guest appearances of bodybuilding is.
1: Well, I, I think that social media has given rise to, um, you know, before you would have these, uh, individuals that had to go prove themselves and, uh, you know, win something and be significant to be on the cover. Now it feels like anybody with a camera training in a gym can be, you know, as big as they need to be. Uh, you a big TikTok guy?
2: Yeah, I actually do a lot of TikTok. Okay. I got a great community on there, and I I do a lot of instructional stuff on on TikTok. So, I know it started off as like people dancing and music, and
1: yeah, I was wondering what what's the Jay Cutler dance?
2: Yeah, so so a lot of my stuff's instructional. So I say, hey, this is a tricep push down. This is how I do it. This is a technique, and this is the area it builds. Uh, so a lot of mine's instructional but yeah I, there's some funny stuff on there I do some you know I was dancing you know in the gym I you know my fiance kind of rubbing up on me while I was trying to get serious about a set and people like to see that stuff I mean the most uh popular TikTok is my quad stomp challenge so basically I'm known as 2009 I came out and I hit my leg and it had all these striations on it so I kind of recreated that and I said let me see your best uh you know, a uh, quad stomp video. And, uh, you know, people try to mimic that. It's very, very popular now, especially as time goes on, like the Jay Cutler quad stomp, because I came out there and shook the stage and, you know, I had crazy striations. That's one thing I was known for is the striations in my leg. So uh, people try to mimic that. Even today, I, I you know, I, I'm looking at, you know, these guys on stage competing in these shows the last few weeks have tried to replicate the quad stomp, but, you know, I'm the original quad stomper.
1: Do you think that they're doing it justice?
2: Uh, you know what? No one's going to top my quad nice. stuff.
1: What, uh, um, I'm always interested when uh, – because this happens in football. It happens in professional sports all the time where people look at different eras and think like, uh, you know, and they argue whether or not Will Chamberlain could play in that era. And the same thing happens in football where, you know, but you have a guy like Tom Brady who's now had had like four, you know, Hall of Fame careers. So it's like the guy can play in any era. What, uh, what about in bodybuilding? Like, uh, when you look, I mean, obviously you'll see pictures of Arnold who, you know, you look in, in like, your era and others, uh, you know, n- even though the physique was still very impressive, like, you see this evolution. I wonder, because uh, we were at the Olympia um, this past, you know, uh, what was a couple weeks ago, and uh, it just curious to know, like, as you sitting back looking at it, having done that, like, what's your impression? Does Ronnie Coleman step on and you step on in any era and win, or
2: has it evolved? Has it changed? Hey, comparing it, Um, you know, it's kind of, I'm kind of like LeBron, MJ comparison. I'm sure they both can't stand it um, Mm -hmm. and how, No, the truth is, is let's, let's be real. I mean, I'm going to tell you as a four-time winner, if you said, okay, tell me who the greatest bodybuilder of all time is, I'd say Ronnie Coleman. If Ronnie Coleman competed in any era, he would beat all these guys. There's no question, but who would be the second guy that would you know, dominate like that. And I would probably say, you know, Lee Haney or Dorian Yates or, you know, and Phil Heath is another guy. I mean, we don't really talk about him because he's still fairly new and winning his seven titles. And I mean, I just think that, uh, you know, there's, everyone has their own place and I don't, I don't really, I hate to make those comparisons, you know, I know, I know that's why I asked you cause, uh, <laughs> like,
1: uh, because, like, uh, because people do hate it, and like it's why Michael Jordan put out the whole uh, the day last the, dance. Yeah, the last dance deal was because he felt that motherfuckers were forgetting who he was, and like these other guys with social media, and he put that out specific because he wanted the next generation to remember well, exactly I, who he was.
2: I think he was more threatened by they started calling LeBron the goat, right? And I think that's really where Jordan said, hey, let me show this new generation. I'm here. We are. It was, what, 18 years later or whatever that he had a show, hey, this is what went on. And you missed it. And listen, I'm thankful I got to see the Jordan era. I mean, I had the Jordan, you know, poster on, you know, on the wall. And and I remember the first day the kid came in in fifth grade with the Air Jordans on and thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this kid, number one, can afford these shoes. They were $100. Um, but I remember seeing, and I have those original Jordans, you know, the collect, I have a ton of Jordan ones, but, um, no one will ever do what he's done. Like he's the, he's the goat There's no one that's going to brand like him or I don't care what anyone says. I mean, he's, he's just kind of He set that tone. Right. Um, but bodybuilding, I mean, to go back to that, I mean, we all have our errors and Arnold's the King. I mean, let's be real. Arnold's just he took, took this thing to another level and that's what impresses me more is like what Arnold was able to do after bodybuilding and, you know, still to this day influence people the way he has, like he's still influencing people, uh, which is crazy at 74 or five years old.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, he got to be governor. He was, you know, movie star. They get into politics. I mean, the the way he extended, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. I don't know if he's yeah, just- necessarily done that.
2: It's not everyone's goal, but, uh, you know, listen, bodybuilding only paid basically nothing back then. It was 500 bucks, I th- think, for the winner, where today it's 400000 which in, in standard is not a ton of money for being the greatest at what you do. But, I mean, at my peak, I won 200 That was the most I ever won, so it's double what I ever was able to win. And, uh, you know, we never cared about the money, to be honest. I mean, it was more about the elite title because you could do so much with that. And to this day, I still, you know, I'm still uh, benefiting off uh, what, what I was able to achieve on that stage.
1: Do you still do a lot of appearances? In, Tons. Uh, travel around?
2: Yeah. Tons. I mean, COVID sidelined a lot of FaceTime. Uh, the next Schedule 1 actually is uh, around the 20, 21st and 22nd. It's in uh, San Diego. And of course, there's a lot of restrictions there with the vaccines. So I, I imagine the limitations is going to be a little less, but it's kind of nice. My international things—we're very, very big overseas—and uh, but I get a lot of requests. I mean, already 2022 is looking to be a, a pretty busy year, and and uh, you know I'm active on social every day, so I'm just doing a ton of YouTube. You know, I have a podcast, and I do um, you know stories through the day, and like I mentioned, the TikToks, so the Snap—I'm on everything, Snapchat. Still trying to—it's still trying to be like 25, you know, acting. It's fucking overwhelming.
1: Like I, uh, like uh, I remember, I I got invited to go to a charity event, and uh, for Steve Weatherford, who's a fucking uh, punter. Oh yeah, you know Steve, and uh, he like comes over to me, and he has like three phones, and like one's a Snapchat. This, and he's like trying to like thank me, but yet he's like doing this whole thing. And I remember being like, "Fuck, dude! Like I don't have the wherewithal to be able to handle this much." like social media influencer, more importantly allowed people to have this much access into my life. And, uh, I was like, okay, cool. And he was like off, like by himself in the corner. And I'm like, man, uh, it just felt really overwhelming.
2: Yeah. He does it. He actually does quite a bit on, on, uh, social media, but it's, listen, it's an, it's an era that some of us grasp and some didn't. I think, uh, you know, letting people inside your life is is something that really made me very successful. So I had, DVDs, which were my early social media. People don't even talk about DVDs anymore, but Ronnie and I would have these DVDs and we would film in our off season or preparation for these shows where you release every year. And that's how we let people inside like, Hey, this is the person I am. This is what I do. This is, this is what I drive. This is how I eat. This is how I live. And, uh, that really, uh, gave people that that insight and, and let people follow you. And then of course we were able to adapt to social, which, you know, in 2012, I made that transition when the magazine started to die off. And, you know, that's just, it's been the opportunity to really kind of interact with your fan base and, you know, and motivate people. And the, the really cool thing about what my career has given me is beyond all these accolades you see in the room here, man, the motivation, like the the mail I get every day and the messages saying, I picked this up and I got this from you or, you know, I'm motivated by what you do. So I feel obligated now to post out the media to keep people. Some people wake up every day and say, I wonder what Jay's doing. Let me see what he's doing. And if they see me on the treadmill, the stairs or whatever, they're like, man, I got to get my ass on there. So that's what's really cool about what we've done and what we are able to achieve to have that influence, the positive things in people's lives.
0: Did you ever get the opportunity or the call from, let's say, a Stallone to make an appearance in Expendables or any feature film?
2: You know what I was working on? uh, This is a cool story, actually. So, 2009, I won the Mr. Olympia back. I had lost the title a year prior to Dexter Jackson. And I was approached by... um, a producer that was working on um the hercules script okay which ended up the rock ended up doing later and i was presented this i actually got to meet with stan lee right i mean i got a face-to-face meeting um Lionsgate, like we talked about you know putting this film up we had a budget of i think 23 million dollars at the time and it, the budget kept going down and down and you know at the time i was i was massive you know i was you know two 70 to 80. And I would have had to slim down a lot. And it just, it, the thing ended up getting canned, but I had that unique opportunity. I mean, I, I, I get to see inside like Hollywood a little bit. And, uh, and then eventually of course the movie came out and I think the rock did it or whatever. But, um, you know, it's just, I never had that opportunity where I wanted to pivot to that because Bodybuilding was so successful for me, but I'll tell you guys, the early influences I had, Were Sylvester Stallone and John Claude Van Damme, so Rocky Four was like a movie that motivated me. I think it motivated a lot of people. And Bloodsport, and I thought these guys because they were cut, they were so jacked, right? I mean, you don't. The TV makes them look so much bigger. And little did I know that Stallone was like 154 in Rocky Four. Believe it or not. And you know,
1: well, they had to have stand on box. yeah, so so they they had Rocky <laughs> standing on a box, and uh, God, I watched something on it because I'm, I'm, I'm I, like I'm always amazed by Dolph Lundgren. Like the dude's like yeah, yeah. Uh, he's got like a PhD in like rocket, like such a fucking interesting dude. But they when they brought him over and they were doing the stuff, they have Stallone standing on a box because what's Stallone like five seven five eight, and he's like 155 pounds, and what's uh, you know Lundgren six four. Yeah. So it's fucking hilarious. So Google, so Google those- says five ten.
2: Those were my guys. Um, And I can tell you, I was able to meet both of them. I actually just ran into um, John Claude not too long ago, about a year ago. It's on my YouTube channel. But so Stallone in 2004, he had a supplement brand and I won my third Arnold Classic. It was Schwarzenegger's show in Ohio. And I remember I was walking into Morton Steakhouse and a guy came running over to me. He's like, hey, hey, I got someone that wants to meet you. And I walked over to a limo. And out steps Stallone, and he goes, hey, Jay, I'm a huge fan. And I was, like, taken back because at 12, I was watching Rocky Four, being like, oh, my gosh, like, so Stallone, he's so jacked, this and that. And little did he know, he motivated me so much. Same thing with with John Claude. I remember the first time I met him, I was, you know, established bodybuilder. I was walking across the parking lot, Gold's Jim Venice. And I see this guy, and the guy's saying, Jay, Jay. And he's walking from his car, and as he gets close, I'm like, oh my goodness, that's John claude Van Damme. And he's like, puts his hand out and he says, Jay, I'm a huge fan. So for me, coming from Massachusetts, town of 6,000 people, never thinking I was gonna ever going to leave that place. You know, I'm youngest of seven kids. Like, man, he, I'm here in California or, you know, I was in Ohio, Ohio for the you know, Stallone meeting. And, you know, Stallone invited me to, to go see The Contender. They were filming it in Vegas. I don't know if you guys recall, he had a TV show for boxing. And he invited me down after that. And, you know, we were able to, you know, be friendly some and those guys, man, they motivated me. And, you know, to meet Arnold after watching, you know, Terminator, I remember watching seeing Terminator two in the movie theater. And that was like the day I was 17 at the time. And I'm like, I am going to be a bodybuilder, like Schwarzenegger is the man. And like all these guys motivated me. So Uh, It's crazy how those points in your life are motivation for the rest of your life. And then, you know, to meet your idols like that, you know, I was just, I've just had great opportunities to do that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's never, I've never forget it.
0: Do you coach any athletes now or is it just sticking to TikTok?
2: I do. I do some coaching. Um, I don't do uh, like on the, on the higher levels. I mean, I advise a a lot of guys like, you know, with their careers and what direction they should do and, and, you know, what decisions sometimes they come to me for advices, but I don't manage anyone. I mean, it's hard enough to keep control of my life, but I do help people with nutrition and, and, uh, you know, training and, you know, people flying, sometimes they work out with me. I, I do, you know, I did a lot of things with charity, make a wish foundation of Los Angeles doing charity camps. And, Uh, that's what I love to do. I like to teach people proper things because, you know, we sit here and have this discussion and said, Jay, how do you stay so healthy? And others aren't as fortunate. Like, I think I have a lot, a lot, a lot of knowledge, but my knowledge is like hands-on. I can't just say, okay, this is how you need to train. Like everyone's body is different, but it's like to go in there and show people like, this is how the rep speed should be. And this is the control you should have. This is the depth you, you can go on a certain movement or, you know, you just have to find the right thing. And I don't, I think it's kind of hands-on in that sense. So, um, you know, I'm just, you know, I just, I feel I have that much knowledge and, you know, I I think I can continue to spread that knowledge. And I think that's what you look for later in your career where you realize, okay, I'm never going to bodybuild again competitively. So you have to find those things that motivate you every day. And, you know, waking up, you can only put so much time on yourself. You want to influence others too.
1: What, uh, Man, it's, it's kind of been a trip. Um, when we were out at the Olympia, one of the bodybuilders died. And then another mm-hmm. guy just passed away. It seems like, uh, you know, a lot of bodybuilders are kind of dropping like flies. And, you know, kind of use a bad cliche, but like seem to be passing away. And here's a situation where, you know, you're probably as healthy, if not healthier, than any of these guys. I mean, you know, the seeing someone like the guys, like once they retire, aren't able to kind of keep it together. I wonder what they're or is it the fact that they were so extreme in the lifestyle that they don't have that competition they kind of go from zero to nothing whereas you've continued to still try to keep it at a very high level
2: yeah i think you know listen everyone's gonna like i said ha- be um uh predisposed to to uh genetic uh makeup right so i mean i i don't know with some of these deaths i mean there's a lot i mean the more ha- you guys probably didn't know a guy died today named victor richards who was a very popular bodybuilder back when I first came on. So he he passed
1: away today because was yeah the, who who the guy that uh, Sean
2: Roden, the Mister Olympia of eighteen. Um, and he just passed away. Last who lived week. here, he lived in Las Vegas. So and and it's tough. We were and, and then we
1: were out there. One of the guys passed away. George today. Peterson, yeah,
2: yeah, the competitor. And you know, there's a lot of talk. I mean, people looking, they're saying, "Oh, it's the vaccines," or you know, people not getting blood work. And the truth is, is like. You know, no matter what people think, you know, yes, there's drugs involved in bodybuilding, there's an extreme amount of food, okay, which it can be dangerous on its own. We talk about the dehydration process, we talk about, uh, you know, we just talked about that. Oh, you're walking the line of death, right? I mean, it, the truth is, is just pe- people, I mean, unfortunately pass away, right? So, uh, I don't know what the factors are as far as. Like why these guys are knocking off, but the truth is, is like a lot of people pass away in their fifties or forty. You know, it happens, right? So uh, I don't think until we know the factors of each speculate why or or how. But just, I was always careful as much as possible to monitoring my health. Like I never had high blood pressure you know, of course I had kidney functions, uh, you know, that I had to be aware of because that was what I was told by the doctors where, especially when you're dehydrating, whether you have to be concerned because obviously you can't regenerate your kidneys. So I, I luckily never had any of those issues. And for me, like I always tried to do as much as possible, like with the cardio and the clean eating and what I've done after my whole objective is now to stay healthy and live to you know, an age where I can really enjoy life, right? Enjoy my family, enjoy the things that for 25 years I had to put on the sidelines, in order to be a selfish bodybuilder. Because it is very, very individual. Where you have to cut out a lot of things in your life. I mean, I always mention I lived in a box where it was like each sleep, train. I didn't deviate to a lot of social gatherings and no one would really understand until you went into that place where it took to get ready for a contest and be that laser focused on it. Um, but listen, it concerns me. It is no question. I'm concerned for my health. Um, you know, I do my checkups. I, you know, I, I, I drop blood every few months. I mean, obviously when you weight train, you know, you're going to, you're going to build up more, um, you know, your blood's going to get a little thicker or whatever. So you have to be really careful, especially having a grandfather and a father who had strokes, um, and was on, were on blood thinners. You know, my dad just passed away at 92 and, uh, you know, I have a great family history, but at the same time, that doesn't mean anything, especially when I pushed my bodies to the extreme. So, uh, I'm always concerned. I mean, I'm 48 years old. I mean, it's, we are not in the early stages of our life necessarily. Yes. It's considered a young age, but um, as we know, a lot of people around us, unfortunately, you know, don't make it to the later ages. So, um, I'm doing everything possible to, uh, navigate my life so I can be as healthy inside as out. So
1: what would be Jay Cutler's recommendation for, uh, for people in terms of like maximizing their life? I mean, what's pretty cool is, uh, you know, you were able to push your body to limits and now you've been able to come out the other side. I mean, Uh, I still train and bang weights every day and still feel pretty good and run and do everything I can do. And it's amazing when I run into guys that played in the NFL, like, you know, for a decade like I did, and longer, they're fucked up. Like, they don't move well. Their shit's all, like, messed up. I mean, I got a a buddy who's, you know, early onset Alzheimer's and, you know, had a lot of teammates die and whatnot. I wonder what would be Jay Cutler's, uh, you know, like, routine or checklist to be able to maintain health into there you know to get to 92
2: listen the number one thing is consistency and that's consistency like listen we've trained as bodybuilders and the amazing thing to me is like the day people quit they just never even work out anymore like i don't i don't you know we do it some people do it for lifelong and it's not really you can tell it i mean it's not a passion because you wouldn't stop if it wasn't so i think this consistency in the diet you know back down off the things that you know get your get your checkups um definitely I think you know watch monitoring your blood work and you know that that is the plus plus but you know you have to not be stressed out in life you know stress is the biggest killer of everything so I mean you, you know for me huge getting the cardio I can tell you guys it's not oh I need to do this because I want to keep my body fat at 6% or whatever. It's truly because I want to think about my day and it gives me that almost that meditation. And I know a lot of people meditate these days. They take that, that silence and they just, you know, they kind of like visualize. And I think it takes a lot of still planning, but at the same time, like find things that relieve stress because we're all enduring stress, especially during these crazy times with pandemics and everything else it's just, it's the time that you, you, you need to yourself, or you have to find hobbies that keep you, you know, in a positive state and just stay active, you know, stay active. Don't become a couch potato. Don't eat a ton of food at night. Stay away from processed sugars. Sugar is the number one killer, especially as you get older, it causes, you know, plaque in, in, in your heart and everything else. You need to focus on keeping a general clean life, you know, Um, And that's really what I, what I kind of, I mean, I kind of value my life around and, you know, I continue to do that on a daily basis. There's no days off, like, and there's no shortcuts. Uh, You have to stay consistent.
0: John talks about the uh, he's picked up welding and all these different skills. Is there any new hobbies skills that 10 years ago you had zero interest in that now you find
1: a passion with?
2: I have five golf lessons scheduled right now. A day. No, no, no.
1: <laughs> He's like, yeah, no. It's one every hour. It's what I did in bodybuilding. I'm just gonna. No, get
2: so it <laughs> I want to golf. Okay, to go back in time when I was 19 to 20, I worked on a golf course. So two seasons, I was a like groundskeeper. I I did um, maintenance on the golf course, and I never took it up because I was so focused on the gym and uh, training and whatever else. And I I really that's one thing I regret. Like nothing in bodybuilding, I regret, but I had that opportunity to golf for free. And I probably would have had coaching for free at the time, but what I would, I just got to get my, my ass out to a golf course. I got to learn how to hit the ball and be able, hopefully I'm I'm able to swing because obviously with my size, you know, I'm still pretty muscular, but I want to learn how to golf so bad because I know that I'd be addicted to it. If I became somewhat successful at it, I know a lot of people say I sucked at it. So I just never kept doing it, but that would be great because I used to get out on that golf course and I would run the the mowers and I'd be out there at like four o'clock waiting for the sun to come up. And, uh, it was so peaceful. And I know at this point in my life, I'm looking for even more peace than what the gym gives me or my cardio sessions or my walk around the neighborhood. And, and, uh, you know, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. So there's one thing. It's the golf. I want to learn how to golf. So I know a million people are going to hit me up from this and say, I can teach you how to golf or you can oh, come yeah. golf with me. And, you know, I want to travel around. I just want to hit golf courses all over. I mean, when I travel to these events, I'd like to take a day and say, okay, I'm going to hit some uh, – do 18 holes or whatever, you know.
1: I think what you got to do is you got to commit to it with the outfit. So you got to go buy a bunch of, like, goofy pants and some funky <laughs> outfits. Huge ass. <Yes. laughs> And then what you do is you get the outfits and then you put them in your in your closet and you're like, fuck! I got to use these outfits. I got these shoes. I got to go out and do this. It's uh,
2: I don't think I'm gonna, I don't think I can do do that.
1: No, <laughs> <laughs> no I mean who who knows? It's uh, but yeah. like I don't know. I, I think it's like uh, it's like everything. If you commit to it and uh, that's what you want to do, I uh, I played golf on numerous occasions and uh, I my dad loved it, so I would gladly go with him. And I know Chris's dad's a big golfer. I personally just do not enjoy it. I, uh, I mean, I can go play, but like, I, and I'll go play if my brothers want to go play. But like, it's not like I wake up every day and it's like God. Whereas your dad, every conversation I've had with him is about golf. Uh huh. It's like his whole fucking life. Oh and, yeah, he's and, great. And my dad was the same way. He loved it.
0: Great teacher, and I mean, he's traveled the world, Ireland, and then that's that's also part of that. Where, wherever he goes, he just finds a nine or eighteen. Yeah. And then his objective is essentially to find a group to tag along with. And you just meet some of the most interesting people in the world. And you're forced into some awesome conversations. Nice. So it's, uh, it's, it certainly brought him joy. I suck.
1: However. Yeah. And, and I'm sure much like your dad, uh, my dad constantly reminded me how bad I was at this. Like, Oh God, you're terrible. I'm like, yeah, keep bringing it old man. Uh, do you have a gym at your house? I was wondering like come COVID, uh, when they shut everything down, the restrictions. Like, did you have a pretty dope uh, gym set up at your house, or do you still have to go to a local gym?
2: I have a, uh, a kind of a makeshift gym here, not well as equipped as some of the other gyms, but I was able to work out at home and and uh, like I said, the weight training isn't really substantial these days. I'm not trying to press a ton of iron, but you know, I was uh, luckily that Vegas has a lot of private facilities, so I were able was able to gain some access shortly after the two week shutdown you know, for two weeks, we were kind of everything was closed. Um, And then after that, you know, things started to open slowly. And I was able to have access to a few private facilities, which was great. And, uh, you know, I, I like I said, I do most of my cardio at home in the morning, I stretch, and then I'll go hit weights in the afternoon, I just love to go to a public gym, I like to go, I have a lot of gyms that are very quiet. And I just love to have that it does, it brings me back to that place. Like I still love the training. I mean, I'm not planning, like I said, I don't miss the stage as much, but I love the training aspect and I love to see um, other people making progress or sometimes the questions I enjoy. I mean, I enjoy like trying to give knowledge to people. And I think me showing face in some of these gyms around Las Vegas is great for the community and, you know, it gives people motivation.
1: Uh, what part of uh, the stage did you hate? Uh I, I watched a video of you where the I think your girl was shaving your back and you were like oh god if only I would never shaved my back. Like I was wondering like is there anything is it like like uh like the the tan spray things? I mean I was wondering like is there anything where you were just like fuck if we could just get rid of this it'd be okay.
2: Yeah, that the tanning went thing was hard cuz we had a basically or we paint brushed it on, it now they spray it on, but uh most of the time now it's it's you know, it's, it's done at the contest. They have groups that do that, but we used to have to prepare at home. So it would take days sometimes. And, you know, the anticipation is what I didn't enjoy as much. Remember we weren't, you know, scoring touchdowns like you guys or you know, knocking people out or, you know, that's the decision is kind of like it's very subjective, right? So if the judges didn't agree your look where you thought walking into a show, like you were your best ever, Um, You know, it's all who you stand next to. And, you know, sometimes it's the judge's favoritism towards, you know, um, a reoccurring champion. And, you know, I was blessed by some of those things. I mean, there's always questionable victories and losses that we go through. And, you know, I was, I was victim sometimes I felt and uh, sometimes, you know, other people may have thought they were victims of that. So, um, but in the end it's the judges that make that decision. So it's not the individual athletes. And uh that anticipation was the hard part. Like, am I going to retain or am I what was my placing gonna be? You know, you work your ass off to get to that point and you know, you think you're at your best, and you know, you've got to just let it let the chips fall where they where they are, and uh, you know, not everything is is always gonna go in your favor. So, um, you know, more more than more than less, things went in my favor, but uh, I don't miss that part.
1: Any drama like uh, chasing the judges out, trying to wring their necks after the show <laughs> or uh, backstage fucking punching a dude or just uh, like I, I imagine when you probably are that hungry and that thirsty and that tired uh, and then uh, a bunch of dudes that are fucking on the edge of this whole thing. I can imagine like tempers flaring or maybe everybody's just so tired and sedated. They're like, I just want to go home and drink some water.
2: Yeah. Most of the guys are depleted. Everyone's a tough guy, man, until you get in their face. You know, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, when the guy cuts you off in traffic and he flips you off and then you, you pull up and you know, you roll your window down and they just keep driving, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, it's, it's not that serious. So I I think there's been some rivalries, nothing with me. I'm a pretty, Genuine, even going person. Like, I don't have problems with people. And, you know, I let my body do the talking at these shows. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I may not have liked some people necessarily, but I just kind of was reserved in that sense. And the judges, man, you know, I loved them when I was winning, but not so much when I wasn't. Right. So, uh,
1: Funny I, how that I mean, works.
2: I mean, there's still some judges where I'm like, uh, you know, I, I question their ability. Like I just mentioned earlier, like they're all qualified, but. You know, it seemed like some of them just didn't like me, you know,
0: (laughs) so (laughs) Uh, a couple quick questions with, with cardio and the invention of the iPad. Like if I want to do 45 minutes, I can zone out on some game of Thrones. Like back then, was it just you and your thoughts or did you find a way
2: to focus or just watch sports on TV? Um, I had a Walkman, which do you remember what a Walkman is? Oh yeah. I yeah. tried to
1: go buy one on fucking eBay the other day, and they're like four hundred dollars, and people want like twenty-five to fifty bucks for cassette tapes. Yeah, because I, I, mean, I explained to my kids, I was telling them about cassette tapes, yeah, and I was yeah. like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna get a Walkman, and I'm gonna buy some cassette tapes. And it was seventy-five dollars for Metallica's fucking three set.
2: Yeah, so I had a yellow Walkman. Do you remember the yellow yeah. and the, the cover that would, would clip? You yeah, know, you and, would yeah. open it yeah. up and it would clamp over, and then you know you had your first, you had your foam ear sets and then they, it went to more of the you know the little buds right and uh you know he had the cord which always got in the way like when I was training or sometimes doing cardio the thing would fall and the thing would rip it's like when people drop their cell phones in the gym and it scoots off the treadmill uh I would listen to music a lot at the time I listened to I would say the most motivational music for me was actually trance music like something that was like instant flow and you know, I felt like the nightclub partying or whatever, which, you know, wasn't really one of my, one of my things that I did, but. So you're a big you know, EDM guy,
1: like raves, like you were you yeah, at the they, raves.
2: Yes. Well, no, I, I mean, I've been to EDC, but <laughs> once, once I went there, um, but how can you not go to a Vegas club? But
1: dude, I, I, I've been to plenty.
2: I, yeah. So, uh, I would listen to more like just music that kept me flowing and the hour would pass and, you know, remember, I was doing this sometimes at like four in the morning to to beat people in the gym. And, uh, you know, if I was doing it at home, I just wanted to get it done and, you know, I'd make it subside. Now I have a TV in my in my my uh, gym here at home and, you know, where I just watch stuff on my phone. A lot of times I listen, I watch YouTube. I think I watch YouTube this morning, just different things. I watched Shannon Sharp, I think, do his analysis, this whole Aaron Rodgers thing, all that, you know.
1: Fuck Shannon Sharp. He's a fucking idiot. <laughs> he's uh he's he's always been a fucking idiot. And uh I've known him for a long time and he's still a fucking idiot. I don't know how you feel about him. But uh uh so funny story, when I was probably like sixteen or seventeen, and I, I grew up in like uh Torrance, Palace Verdes area, if you know that area. And uh we drove to the Venice Golds. So we, you yeah. know, like obviously we'd start lifting weights and we're training for football. And one of my buddies was like uh, like competing in a bodybuilding show, so we drove over there. And I remember we walked in and we saw uh, Paul DeLette. Yeah. He had like a, like, look like Frankenstein, like the crazy veins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, uh, he was walking on a treadmill at probably like one to two miles an hour. So slow, right? Right. Like at like one degree of incline. Yeah. And I mean, we fucking trained, like we used every piece of equipment in the gym. We tried to lift every dumbbell. Like we must've been there for a better part of like three or four hours. Like we just were like, fuck it. We're here. Let's try everything. And uh, that dude walked on the treadmill the entire time we were there at the slowest pace. Like, we just called him the turtle. We didn't know who he, he was. Had a
2: towel. he had a towel on his yeah. neck for sure, right? And,
1: and he was wearing, like, big, like, like, uh, like the, the cool Zuba lifterman pants. Yeah, 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 And, like, yeah. this big, like, 9X sweatshirt. And he had those, like, those boots, you know, that, like, go up to your calves, but they don't tie. Yeah. And um, I'm sure he got a couple of those hidden somewhere. And, dude, he walked. No music. I mean, they played music in, in, the, in the gym in Venice Golds, I think. Uh, He had no headphones or anything, but I just remember it was like two miles an hour, one degree of incline. Because of course we walked. We went over and looked, and the dude literally the slowest fucking walk I've ever seen. And the dude did not stop for like better part of four hours. And we were like, he he was was... my
2: neighbor. Yeah, he was my neighbor, John. Actually, so he lived next door to me when I moved to California in Orange County. So he would drive up to Venice every day, and you know, you're, I mean. It was a little further. It's, what, an hour, 45 uh, minutes?
1: You said drive from Orange County to Venice, and I almost threw up in my mouth a little bit because <laughs> it's such a long fucking yeah. drive. <laughs> the 405, oh, fuck, I don't miss it.
2: Yeah, so he was my neighbor, so you would drive up every day, and, uh, you know, he was one of the guys that kind of motivated me in the beginning, too. But, yeah, he he walked very slow on the treadmill for sure.
1: Oh, it, I, and then there was uh, – I remember, it, like, whenever we came in, like, you remember, like, the, the there was, like, the uh, – don't know like the fucking reception booth but yeah. then there was like a bunch of like like kind of like benches and these big bodybuilders were just like sitting there eating out of these tupperware containers and dude farting so bad i remember we walked in and i was like this place smells awful and uh <laughs> i just remember these big bodybuilder dudes and just like we went in there and we lifted every weights and those dudes were still eating and that dude was still walking on the gym and then uh, i remember we went back like the next weekend sure same deal dude was still walking with the treadmill so it was our joke that he had never left and they're like man that guy's fucking walking it was uh it it was so slow like you could walk around your house faster than that like i just remember thinking like what the fuck is this guy doing but i remember he had these crazy uh veins on his neck and we thought they kind of looked like bolts almost like he looked like um frankenstein
2: yeah you know venice golds had that mystique about it right it was the aura so i'm sure you like with your friends went up there and like, oh, we're training at Gold's Venice, and I, yep. I mean, I used to see, I mean, I saw everybody there, Kobe used to magic train there, I mean, Tommy Lee Jones, Keanu Reeves, I used to see, um, you know, so many people, man, just in and out of that place, and I remember coming out in the early years, and training there, and thinking, God, it's like a who's who, like, you see every movie star, and, you know, athlete, every, the bodybuilders, you know, Flex Wheelers, and the Dillettes, and Sean Ray's, and all these guys that were just super popular in the books. And I used to just sit and watch these guys work out and, uh, you know, it's kind of sad because it doesn't have that same mystique anymore since, you know, since the pandemic and whatever else, you know, they brought a lot of equipment outside and we shoot a lot of content there actually shot a few weeks ago, but, um, hopefully it will get back to what it was, you know, new company just bought Gold's gym, a German company, and, uh, they're trying to bring it back to the old age.
1: So where I lived in uh, Orange County, um, between where my office was and my house, was the old, was Metrics. Mm-hmm, yep. I don't know if you remember that. I trained there, yeah. Yeah, so I, I I used to have a membership, and I would stop uh, at Metrics and train before I went to work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, we loved that place. And, like, a bunch of pros would show in. And, and then one day I showed up, and they had sold to these guys called The Twelve, which yep. was, like, imagine, like, oh, God, what's the right word? Like, imagine going to a rave where people are doing circuit training. Like with a DJ, so we like walked in and they were like, "Yeah, we bought this place. We did a renovation over the weekend, and now it's circuit training in a rave." And <laughs> they had a DJ on a booth. And it was and like neon
2: booth. lights and stuff, yeah. right? Oh yeah. yeah,
1: fucking absolutely insane. Yeah. And uh, the the best part though is they threw away a bunch of the old uh, metrics equipment, and it was in the dumpsters out back. And we just fucking backed my truck up, and we were able to find like the old Hatfield safety squat bars. I mean, we were trying to fucking pillage anything we could. And these guys came out, they like, is this stuff worth anything? We're like, not to you, it's not. Yeah, yeah. And it. Uh, and then we went in, and the guy was like, you know, because we still had memberships there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it wasn't as if they were just going to, like, fuck us on the membership. So the guy's like, oh, yeah, I'll give you the rest of the year. You can come train. We went in there, like, four times. And I'm like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And yeah. Then it
2: was, like- yeah. It was Troy Zucalato took that gym over later um, and called it Z's Fitness. But that was on 17th Street. So we yep. used to do – the flex photo shoots there too. So that's probably the time where a lot of the pros were coming in and out of there. But that was the place I joined actually when I moved out there in 99.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. The, uh, I think Zuccolato had like a life extension clinic in there. Still, still yeah. does. And then, uh, but I, I wonder if, if he went back and bought it. I wonder if the 12 is still there. That was probably like four or five years ago that those guys took it over.
2: I don't think it's exists. There's a lot of smaller cause I still travel out to Huntington. I stay in Huntington a lot. And uh, I travel to a couple private facilities. There's more like key card clubs out there now. So Earned Fitness and, uh, you know, there's a couple other ones.
0: Jay, have you ever heard of uh, a musician called DJ Muscle Boy? I have not. It's it's worth a YouTube. <laughs> he, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's He's got some epically creative fun, and he just makes fun of uh, he's, everything.
1: He's from? Sweden. Uh, no, no, he's from or, Finland. Uh, no, uh, Iceland yeah the viking clap he's yeah great. yeah he's i uh, icelandic dude and uh i can't remember how he got on our radar but uh somebody was like forwarding us this and we had him on the podcast years ago which is hilarious and just if you if you google dj muscle boy you'll you'll just fucking laugh yeah and have some fun with it yeah it's it's pretty good so yeah i've yeah.
2: traveled to iceland it was one of the most amazing places i visited the bodybuilding culture was crazy there and you know half thor is from there um yeah. You know the strong man. Now he's a boxer. But uh, do you know how many
1: people are in Iceland? Total, a million. I think it might even be less than that. I okay. mean, it's it, it. Yeah, if it was a million, yeah, it was somewhere like I remember Matt Vincent was telling me it's like it might be between like seven hundred fifty million people, and uh, it's yeah. I mean, what an amazing oh, wow. place. Three hundred and sixty-six thousand as oh. of twenty twenty. So less than four hundred thousand. I thought it was a million people. Yeah, maybe they lost some. But, yeah, the the fact that, uh, like, Half Thor and uh, all these, like, CrossFit chicks that are from Iceland, like, it's pretty amazing, like, the genetic pool they have going on up there. Yeah, it's a beautiful
2: place to visit, though.
1: Oh, yeah, whenever you see, like, at least for me, like, whenever I, I follow, like, you know, different tags on Instagram, like Adventure and, you know, some of this stuff, and you'll see these pictures come up. And as soon as you see it, you're like, holy shit, And it's always Iceland. Jay, do you
0: have any uh, bucket list travel locations? Like, I'm I'm Northern Lights. Like, I'm going to Iceland at some point. But, yeah. like, a couple other places on the list. We've been 24 countries for seminars to yeah, teach, we've so taught, pretty taught well-traveled more. as well. But is there any place that you want to go
2: you haven't been yet? Thailand and New Zealand. Thailand and New Zealand. Those are places I want to visit.
1: So, ironically, uh, do, do you remember uh, um, a dude, Bob Sapp? Big fighter, big black oh, yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah. So, Bob, uh, Bob's one of my oldest friends. He was like in my wedding uh, when I got married 10 years ago. And Bob actually lives in Thailand. I talked to him probably like two weeks ago. And now he owns like a wildcat preserve. And okay. he like collects wildcats from around the world to live in his preserve because he's fucking obsessed with these big felines. And uh, he's like, You got to bring your kids and see these big wild cats. I'm like, So then I got him on FaceTime and with my daughters. And they were like showing him these crazy cats. And now every day they're like, When are we going to Thailand to visit Bob? I'm like, Oh, fuck. So. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he was very popular in Asia, Bob Sapp. Yeah, I mean, super popular. So it's not surprising he ended up there.
1: We were in uh, Tokyo, or we were in was it Osaka or Tokyo with him, and uh, the we were stuck in traffic, and he got out of his cab with us, mm-hmm. and uh, like I imagine that's what like the like what it was like for like when the Beatles when they came to America, or like what a boy band concert was like. I've never in my life seen. A eruption of people like a fucking mass hysteria to the point where we were like we got to get off the street and just ran into a place. like it almost had a fucking riot, and i I didn't realize like he was Asian man Time magazine, like he was like Justin Bieber in fucking like the middle of Times Square. Crazy yeah, it was wild
0: uh, Jay, you mentioned podcast what is uh, what is the podcast title? Where can people find it, and what what can they expect?
2: it's uh cutlercast it's all over the place youtube spotify um basically i i think we've done 11 episodes now so we're pretty in the early, uh, early stages but um you know right now uh, i'm working on bringing on i think my first guest is actually this coming weekend uh which i'm going to have a surprise but uh, i've kind of been kind of talking about like lifestyle and just you know getting people in in the mix a little bit about what's kind of happening in my life and I have a guy that's kind of my co-host that uh that's worked alongside me in the industry and everything so um we're gonna you know just feature whatever's whatever's going on talk about you know general things and you know try to bring on some interesting guests obviously focusing on a lot of fitness people because that's kind of the wheelhouse of my following that you know people follow me there so uh i'm excited about it something that i never really done i mean i've done the youtube stuff for JTV. But uh, this is just another outlet that gives people a little more insight of my thoughts and, and processes on kind of what's going on in the, in the world today and uh, my intake on a lot of things.
1: Cool. Sounds awesome. awesome.
0: So what's your TikTok, Instagram, all those good handles that people can go to to, to learn more and follow you?
2: At J Cutler. It's all verified. Uh, Instagram. Um, Snapchat's at Mr. OJ Cutler. Twitter's the same at Mr. OJ Cutler. Um, like I said, Jay Cutler TV, YouTube. Um, you know my nutrition brand, you know, Cutler Nutrition, or jcutler.com dot uh, com. You guys can find me anywhere. Pretty much, if I'm not the football player, uh, you'll find me.
1: Well, I find you much more interesting. I've never been a Chicago Bears fan.
2: <laughs> well, remember he was a he was a Denver guy at first, right? I'm
1: not a Denver fan. I played yeah. for the Chiefs and I played for the Eagles, so it's uh, no. I'm just never. Uh, so Luke, who used to work with us big chicago guy big jay cutler fan so instantly i had to be anti jay cutler and everything which is funny because now i like jay cutler at uh post in retirement especially after he got rid of that uh um reality yeah the reality told us and then the guy like just wants to live on a ranch and have animals and raise his kids can't be mad at that yeah so i actually you know, like
2: him a lot better when he came on you know i won the olympia the year he was drafted you know he was graduating from vanderbilt so uh, we had a lot of comparisons, you know, of course, all the, the media starts looking up Jay Cutler and I was had the website at the time. So I had a lot of Sports Illustrated and everyone tried to make these comparisons. OK, how can we kind of intertwine these guys? And, you know, the, the, the tweets on Sundays became um, pretty taxing for me because I, I knew how he was performing. And, you know, listen, he was one of the higher paid quarterbacks. Right. I mean, he made a ton of money. And uh, I think his talent, it just, he never meshed well with with the teams that he was. And, I mean, well, just, he never lived up to the billing. And yes. the
1: other problem, too, is is he was uh, like not a big uh, weight room or a big training guy. Like he was not like. Uh, so that's kind of irony a little bit that mm-hmm. you both ended up in the same deal. And you're like, maybe I could have given him a little bit of hard work in the offseason.
2: Yeah. So I still get a lot of the comparisons. I still get the tweets. Uh, I'm still getting tagged in a lot of the stuff. But his social media, he wasn't really adaptive to social media as much i think now you know he's gotten more like you said relevant through this the um reality show and you know kind of what he's doing now so it's good to see people come out of their shells sometimes it takes time and not being in the limelight that that gives them the opportunity to uh people have different judgment you know so well I I get think, to beat up someday i hope you know
1: i th- i think at some point it's nice to be able to control you know, control your own narrative a little bit and i think as an nfl player uh the team and the fans and You know, the sports and everything that you're doing on Sunday allows everybody else to kind of control the narrative. And so it's nice when you retire a little bit to like rebrand and just control your narrative and be able to talk about what you want to talk about and be more than just who you are. Like, uh, you know, uh, I would say on your own podcast as you're starting, like have other people that are interesting in other ways and show people like the, you know, the range of who you are and what you, you know, the discussions and what. I mean, bring on authors or people that are necessarily not in the fitness Zoned, so it just uh, expands your genealogy and your reach. Uh, that's cool. something that we've done, where we've had people on, where you know, Chris will be like, we, we book this, you know, uh, uh, you know, fucking New York Times bestselling author, and I'll go read their book and have really interesting conversations on things that I might not necessarily been exposed to. So mm-hmm. I think that's always been, you know, pretty neat, especially with this podcast we've done. So just increasing the genealogy and who you know. Yes, great. Cool. Cool. Yeah, Jay, man, thank you for your time. I know it was uh,
0: it was a great experience, and congratulations on being inducted to the Hall of Fame.
2: Yeah, it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty surprising, man. It was a pretty cool opportunity because I think when I gave up there and and it did my speech, you know, I, I said, "Why me?" And to be with like, Blanks, so I would like Marcus Allen and you know, Stephanie McMahon, which a lot of people know, and a lot of these other people uh, that you know have such great achievements in, in their field. Billy Blanks and you know it's, it's pretty cool i mean i watched marcus allen you know in sports illustrated when i was a young kid and watching you know the raiders when they were great um it was just really cool to be alongside someone like that man it's, you never imagine you meet those kind of people and i never realized his accolades were as substantial as they were like you know, i don't know the history of sometimes some of these ball players but you know, everyone has greatness within them. It's just who re- reaches that level and pushes themselves to that. I, I believe that. Right? Everyone has greatness, right? No matter what they, it just depends on how high they want to take it. And, uh, you know, some of us shoot for the highest and some people just, you know, they become great parents or, you know, family members that motivate, you know, a smaller community, but uh it's, it's it was a great opportunity so i'm thankful for bob goldman and the and the community and pack and these guys cool
1: well thanks for tuning in to another episode
0: now it's time for you to empower your performance you can find jay cutler on instagram at jay cutler and of course you know this dude is on tiktok until next time bye